0: Just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language. I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and this is a special episode of Where We Go Next. Joining us again today are Dan Bulick and Pat Brennan, co-stars of the ongoing YouTube series Console Wars, in which Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis games go head-to-head for 16-bit supremacy. Dan, Pat, thanks so much for joining us again. Hey. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having again. And for our listeners, this is a special bonus episode of the podcast. I've done one before with also guest of the show, Jay Shapiro. And in that episode, we talked about two movies that had big impacts on us. I chose a movie for Jay to watch and Jay chose a movie for me to watch. And we spent the episode discussing them. Now, Dan and Pat, you've been on this podcast before, and that was more of a deep dive into your friendship, into the show, into 16-bit Video game nostalgia in general was way more structured, but this being a bonus episode is kind of in the same structure of the one I did with Jay, where Dan, you chose a game from the 16-bit era that you wanted Pat and I to play, Pat, you chose a game from the 16-bit era that you wanted Dan and I to play, and I chose a game from the 16-bit era, you see where this is going, that I wanted the two of you to play, and we're all going to discuss what those games mean to us, what it was like to revisit them as adults, what it was like to play each other's recommendations and what it was like to grow up in the 16-bit era of video games and how it feels looking back on that era now as adults in the modern era. So, I guess to start us off, this is an episode of firsts for me. One, this is the first episode that I've ever been drinking an alcoholic
1: beverage, so I guess we should go around. Dan, what are you drinking? I am drinking good old Johnny Walker Black. A little bit of ice in there. A little bit of water, too. It looks like a blot, but there's it's water in here. Don't worry. And, Pat, how about yourself? What are you having?
2: I am drinking Ho Garden wit beer. I decided to keep it a little bit lighter than dark booze today. That's maybe a later thing, but you're working your way into it.
0: I respect it.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: it's a daytime drink. Myself, I am having a Woodford Reserve double oaked aged bourbon whiskey. I probably butchering that name. I just know that it's brown, it's delicious, and it gets the job done.
1: Very nice.
2: It sounds fantastic.
0: Thank you for choosing us to be the first guests to drink with. Cheers to that. Of course. For people who are not familiar with Console Wars, a running gag slash theme of the show is sitting around having a beer, trying to figure out how to spend your evening when all of a sudden, through a sometimes increasingly contrived set of circumstances, you decide to review a Genesis versus an SNES game. But a lot of the episodes do start with the two of you on that infamous couch. Although that sounds weird when I call it infamous. (laughs) I don't want to evoke other couches from media. Yes. But you start on on a couch drinking beer. So I thought if I'm going to break my alcohol fast for this podcast, it had to be with you guys. Well, we appreciate it. It truly is a monumental occasion. Okay, so let's also discuss what our video game picks were. Because Dan, we're going to start with you. But before we get into that, Dan, which game did you pick?
1: I picked uh, Sega Genesis game and that is The Adventures of Batman and Robin. Pat, how about yourself? What game did you pick for us to play? Uh, I picked Earthworm
0: Jim for the Sega Genesis. And I picked one of the most iconic Super Nintendo games, Super Mario Kart. And I will apologize in advance because I played the Super Nintendo version of Earthworm Jim in preparation for our discussion. So I'll have to comment on the Super Nintendo version. But Dan, let's start with you. I guess... Start with your first experience of The Adventures of Batman and Robin for Genesis. When did you first
1: play it as a kid? And why did you decide to choose it for us to play as an adult? I guess I first played it as a kid around the time it came out. Like, I remember, like, even before it came out, just, like, seeing pictures of it in video game magazines and just, like, looking at the graphics. I was like, oh, my God, there's some 3D. You know, this is the era of the Genesis when they're kind of doing 3D, but not really 3D. Like, you know, like Vector man and that stuff. And then this game had stuff like that so I was like oh I definitely got to get it and I got to get it for Sega Genesis because this game did come out for both consoles and it's very different for both consoles but I decided when I was a kid like I got to get the Sega Genesis version so I got it and it was a bit of a shock when I first got it because it's very different it's not a Batman game <laughs> it's a shooter <laughs> it's a shoot 'em up <laughs> basically and I don't know it's just really weird that your primary attack is not punching people that it's throwing various weapons so That really shocked me as a kid, but I picked it for this episode, not for the gameplay. I picked it for the music because this is hands down the best soundtrack on the Sega Genesis. That's better than any of the Streets of Rage, any of the Sonic games, the best soundtrack on Sega Genesis. That's why I picked it.
0: Considering that Console Wars first began because of a game soundtrack, specifically East Three Wanders from East. <laughs> I think you were looking for the Super Nintendo version of that soundtrack, came across the Sega Genesis one, and that was the genesis, so to speak, <laughs> of the channel because you decided, oh, wouldn't it be cool to compare these two soundtracks to each other? And then that kind of birthed
2: Console Wars. Correct. All those facts are correct been doing his homework very good (laughs) like i said last time it's like being on an episode of hot ones with this guy (laughs) that particular bit of prep
0: was a little bit easier because all i had to do was go back and listen to the first episode that you did on this podcast to get that fact so i kind of plagiarized myself it was a year ago it doesn't count it's interesting because you reviewed both versions of the adventures of batman and robin for console wars years and years ago Mm -hmm. and you wrote in the comments of that episode quote when you think of batman you don't think of a contra like shooter you think defeating enemies using your fists various weapons and brains actually i think that was a comment that you said at the end of the review and when i was going through and playing it that's kind of like the exact same experience that i had because it really is more of a contra or sunset riders
1: or gunstar heroes type of game which is not something you associate with batman not at all yeah like i said when i was a kid i was just like I don't know about this. Like, this is weird. You have these three different weapons. I mean, then, like, you punch people when you get close enough to them. But he actually, I noticed when I was playing it, he headbutts a lot. If they're close, it it looks like he's punching, but it's a headbutt. He does do a headbutt, too. So that's pretty badass. I don't see him headbutting in any other Batman game. So maybe this one's the best one. And maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) But uh, no, yeah, it it is a shocker. It's just like, it doesn't play like a typical Batman game. It certainly doesn't sound... I said it has the best soundtrack, but it's not a soundtrack you'd expect for a Batman game. But at least
0: it looks like the cartoon did. From a visual perspective, I can understand why it would be appealing to a kid. I mean, even as an adult looking back, the graphics are dated. Of course they are. It came out on August 2nd, 1995. So that's quite some time ago. But th- those kind of like faux 3D effects that it does, like there were a couple things that I called out as I was playing it. And I should say... I had a choice when I was playing this game. I either had to play the game as intended and never make it past the first level (laughs) or use Game Genie cheats. And while I won't admit whether or not I used Game Genie cheats, I can admit that I did get to the end of the game. So, (laughs) dude, in all seriousness, it is one of the most difficult games that I have ever played. I honestly thought you could have been pranking me by choosing this game because I was so frustrated trying to play it. I don't even know if the game is playable without two players playing it and without Game Genie cheats because you're overwhelmed by a constant stream of enemies. Mm -hmm. And although it's a shooter, it doesn't really play like a traditional shooter because it rewards you for not shooting. So like the longer you go in between shots, the more your weapon is able to charge up and the more it's able to charge up, the more powerful it gets. So you're almost trying to balance this act of waiting until the very last second to fire your projectile because it'll get more powerful the longer you wait (laughs) but that's really difficult because there's sometimes as much as what eight nine ten enemies on screen at once just overwhelming you easily
1: yeah it's a very difficult game yeah i don't expect you or pat to beat it for sure speaking of game genie when i was a kid that's the only way i beat it as a kid that's the only way i ever got past it It wasn't i got past the first level but i never got past the second level where you're just flying over gotham which is like an hour long oh my god it's so long why did they make this so long you know how bad it was we used the game genie and we had like the rapid fire thing and like infinite life we used to like just rig the controller so it would fire automatically leave and go play for an hour Mm -hmm. and then come back. We never actually stuck around to see the end of the second level when I was a kid because it was just so long and stupidly hard. And there's like four of them. There's four of the sky levels. It just doesn't
0: end. Yeah, it's just long as hell. Yeah. Okay, so Dan, this game came out in 1995. About how old were you that year? That year, 11. Okay, so you were 11. So what was little 11-year-old Dan doing at that time when he wasn't playing The Adventures of Batman and Robin? What was going on in your life?
1: Not much. (laughs) I played a little bit of Little League and sucked at baseball really bad. I think video games was like my life at that point. I haven't picked up the guitar yet. I wouldn't pick up the guitar until I was 13. So that took over my life. But at 11, pretty much like between 7 and 12, like all I did was play video games and then a little bit of baseball. So
0: (laughs) that's what I was doing. And I know it's difficult at that age to be self-actualized enough to understand why video games are appealing beyond like the rote answers you might get from someone that age where it's the graphics are cool or I like playing as this character. Looking back as an adult now, do you have a better idea of what was so appealing about video games to you at that time? Do you remember what it was like being a kid and first falling in love with and playing video games? What was it about video games that grabbed you then?
1: Um. wow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess it is just like really cool to just be doing things that you would never do in real life. Of course, in the case of this game, like I get to be Batman, I was a huge fan of the animated series. So of course, like anything related to Batman, I was also a big fan of the movies too. So anything related to Batman, it was just like, yes, let's do that. And like I said, it was such a shock, like how different from the animated series was. It wasn't until I was much older that I realized, oh, this isn't a Batman game. Actually, they probably just put a a coat of Batman on and said, okay, now it's a Batman game, but it definitely wasn't originally going to be a Batman game. I could bet a better million dollars that they had no plans on making it a Batman game until someone's making Batman now. Even the first Batman game based off the movie played like Ninja Gaiden. Yeah, it was just didn't seem Batman-y at all. Yeah. Like the best part about that, like when I was a kid, were like the cutscenes, Right. Because it it's, oh my God. And again, it's like Ninja Gaiden. Like it was like the cutscenes were like so cool. But yeah, again, everything just drew me in. I love just, being able to control these cool characters that like, oh man, I wish I could do that in real life. And then like, you know, it was something I was good at. I could do that. And something to do with your friends other than baseball, (laughs) which I sucked at. (laughs) It was just really cool. It was really fun and silly and not too serious and hell of a way to kill a boring afternoon.
0: Yeah, I think you've touched on some really important points there. I think that video games, even today, but especially back then, was a kind of wish fulfillment that you really couldn't get in any other medium at that time. And in the same way that when I watched Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time, I probably burned that VHS tape out because I was watching it so many times. And when I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, I liked to project myself into the character of Indiana Jones. But with a video game, it's not just that you're watching that character. You are literally choosing what that character does or doesn't do. You are getting closer to becoming that character than really any other medium outside of virtual reality. So I can understand as a little kid who's comic books obsessed, as I was at that age, getting to play as the character to control what they do, I'm sure has a lot of appeal for an 11-year-old.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Much more eloquently put than I put it. <laughs> I love how it just goes through all that and you just go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> am I supposed to top that. <laughs>
2: In the
0: same way that after nearly 12 years of puppet driven skits and Weird Al Yankovic style songs, you guys have become experts at what you do. (laughs) I've been talking for two and a half years in this podcast. So if I can't be a little eloquent in (laughs) rephrasing what my guests have just said to me,
1: then I'm probably out of a job. I should just bring you around my normal going ons (laughs) in life and just be like, all right, Michael, interpret that for me in a way that makes me sound intelligent. Thank you. But
0: I feel like the 90s were an, also an era of kind of like reskinning things. Are either of you fans of
1: Die Hard 3? We, we talk about that one all the time. That's like our favorite one. For The Vengeance?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a reskin. It was based on a script written by James Hagen. He sold a script called Troubleshooter to Fox. It was about bad guys taking over a cruise ship and the hero of the film having to take the bad guys down by solving a series of puzzles. And once Fox bought it, they reskinned it and had it rewritten as Die Hard 3. So originally, if that movie feels different from the two Die Hards that came before it, which it definitely did. I mean, Die Hard 1 and 2 were like these claustrophobic one-man-against-everyone-else sort of movies. And then Die Hard 3 is they're running all over downtown Manhattan trying to solve puzzles just in time. It felt nothing like a traditional Die Hard film, and that's because, maybe like The Adventures of Batman and Robin,
2: it was not a Die Hard film to start off with. Did not know that. I didn't know that either. That's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah. The original way you described it I was like, isn't this under siege? Like, <laughs> no, I was thinking Speed 2, what you were talking about, actually. Yeah, Speed 2,
0: Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we know that the soundtrack is what stood out to you. And actually, I think now is a good time as any to play some of at least my favorite songs from when I was playing this game and being increasingly frustrated. But sometimes what I would do during these periods of intense frustration, Dan, is I would just pause the game and let the soundtrack play because the soundtrack, as the kids would say today, absolutely slaps. So there are two songs that really stood out to me as my favorites, and our audience will be able to listen to this when this goes live. But for the three of us, I'm going to just play a short snippet from one of the songs. It's called Joker's Theme. Now, that is not the song that plays in the club at the start of Blade (laughs) starring Wesley Snipes. That is, in fact, a song from The Adventures of Batman and Robin. The Adventures of Batman on the Super Nintendo has all of those classic themes from the cartoon that existed at the same time. Mm -hmm. But the Genesis soundtrack, as you've just heard, went a completely different direction. Was this EDM style of music something that you... (laughs) I can anticipate the answer to this question as I'm asking it, as I'm formulating it in my mind, but I'm going to ask it anyway, Dan... Was this EDM style of music something you were already interested in as an 11-year-old? Or was it something where The Adventures of Batman and Robin for the Genesis was your first exposure to this type of music? I guess my question is, what stood out about this music to you as an 11-year-old that you were like, oh, this
1: I can get down with this? I think the one thing that really stood out to me was that it wasn't like the simple, typical video game music that I was used to. Most video game music has a simple formula. There's the obvious melody. It might change to a different section and then it usually changes back. Usually 30 second loops I'm used to from those games back in the day. But this soundtrack, just the opening song of this game, I've listened to it again in preparation for this episode. It is nine minutes and it is completely different and it does not repeat exactly the same that entire nine minutes. There is a breakdown with a sick ass guitar solo in that opening. At the three and a half minute mark that just blew my mind as a kid. Cause there's like an opening cinematic that loops in the beginning of this game. And I was just like watching it and I was listening to the music and then it loops like 10 times. And then by the three and a half minute mark, when it kicks into that guitar solo, I was just like, oh my God, there's something happening here that I've not experienced in any video game soundtrack ever before or since. It's just so different. It's like, He's not trying to make it like, you know, like Mario or something. It was just like, let's just go, let's get fucking weird here. And we're going to just, I, I can swear on here, right? Of course. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, let's just make it weird. And then it's going to completely be different. And then for me, that made me want to listen to it over and over again. Like it upped the replay value for me. Cause it just wasn't the same thing over and over again. So that was the thing that really drew me in. I wasn't even like a music fan at that point in my life. And then, um, to hear something like, wow, this is a bold thing and I kind of dig it. So it just drew me in because it was just so different from all the other video game soundtracks I'd heard at the time. Yeah, I think that's really well put. I hadn't
0: thought about song length as a differentiator, but while you were talking, I just as a comparison, I pulled up the length of the songs from Super Mario Kart, which is the game that I chose. And if we're looking at like the average length of these songs, because anyone who grew up in that era, when they think of music from a 16-bit video game, they think of looping, right? The song will play for a set amount of time and then it will loop back to the beginning. And so if you look at Mario Circuit, which I'll be playing a little bit later, that song is one minute and 16 seconds long. You've got Donut Planes. That song's a minute and 11 seconds. You've got the main theme. That's 39 seconds. Now, compare that to The Adventures of Batman and Robin for the Genesis. You've got the main title. <laughs> this is the song that just plays over the opening title in which you press start or select. It's 18 minutes and 37 seconds. You've got Gotham by Night, which is 13 minutes and 26 seconds. On the shorter end, you have Joker's theme, which is four minutes and 42 seconds, which we uh, just played. But yet the songs are longer than even like songs that bands would put out. I mean, these are are symphonic soundtrack songs that I would be curious to know if Jesper came from any kind of gaming background at all, or if he approached this as someone would approach just making a soundtrack for anything, because that would be a much different angle at which to make a video game soundtrack and would help explain why this sounds unlike anything from its era in a way that I think
1: Donkey Kong Country broke the mold as well. That's a good one. Good call on that. To me, it's kind of like jam band EDM in a way because it's like we got this one thing and then we're just going to fuck with it a little bit and then we're gonna fuck with it a little bit more and then we're gonna mess with it here and now we're gonna go completely in a different direction and now we'll come back. Like I'm picturing just the dude sitting in a room with a synth board for like a
2: day just going ham. Yes. Here, eat this thing. Don't ask what it is, but just go in this
1: room, play with the synth board, and we'll let you out in a little bit. It's so good. I love the soundtrack so much. I can't get enough of it.
0: My other favorite song from that game was just a song called Extreme Boss, which I would like to play just a little bit. So the audience is brought in a little more to the awesomeness of the soundtrack. So here is Extreme Boss from the Genesis version of The Adventures of Batman and Robin.
1: That's Harvey Dent's boss theme. It also reminds me of, for some reason, of the Judge Dread game. I highly recommend the track Space Boss. Just letting you know, that's my favorite. That's uh, the Mad Hatter boss theme. Space Boss. Yeah. I was just going to say, was that Mad Hatter? Yeah. The Hatter, awesome. I wonder if these song titles,
0: because when I was Googling them online, like they had generic sounding... Mm-hmm. One was obviously called Joker's Theme, but then this other one was called Extreme Boss. And when you called out that it was Harvey Dent, I'm like, oh, of course it was. Now I'm remembering
1: which level it was for. And even Space Boss for Mad Hatters, they were just made. They were manufactured and just picked. Again, it was originally this type of game. And then they just put a coat of Batman all over and say, okay, that'll be the Mad Hatter's theme, but it's already called Space Boss or whatever. Right. Make sure everybody gets
2: some kind of spaceship to fight them in. (laughs) Okay, so Dan...
0: Before you inflicted The Adventures of Batman and Robin onto Pat and I, were there any honorable mentions either from the Genesis or the Super Nintendo that you thought about choosing
1: as your pick that are close seconds? Pat already knows what I'm going to say. I see him grinning at me. Obviously, Chrono Trigger. I would love to make Pat play Chrono Trigger, but I just can't see Pat sitting down and playing in a JRPG. <laughs> so I'll be kind and make him play Adventures of Batman and Robin instead. I thought you were going to say the other one that you gave me to try to play. Oh, Golden Axe 2. Look at the lady on the cover. That was a point of conversation multiple times. Well, yeah, I was very (laughs) attracted to the lady on the cover of
0: Golden Axe 2 when I was a child. (laughs) I will stand in solidarity with you, Dan. And I will also admit that one of my first childhood crushes, without even understanding what was happening in my body, was Jessica Rabbit when I was about six years old. (laughs) That's why she exists understand you are not alone you are not the first nor will you be the last boy or girl to fall in love with an image on a cartridge or a vhs tape although actually in the digital era you might be we might be dinosaurs it's all online now (laughs) that's true so you would have picked either chrono trigger or perhaps golden axe 2 were there any other games from that era that really made an impact on you um maybe streets of rage 2 oh yeah that's just so popular well, and it makes
1: sense that that would stand out to you because of the soundtrack is just so good. Exactly. Love that soundtrack, too. Like I say, Adventures Batman Robin is like number one for me. But well, Streets of Rage series in general is really close number two.
0: Yeah, no, the Streets of Rage 2 game is phenomenal. The soundtrack really holds up. There is a fantastic making of video for Streets of Rage 2 by a YouTube channel called Strafe Fox, which goes in depth about how they were able to accomplish the soundtrack tricks they were able to do, which I will post in the show notes. And the two of you gentlemen, if you've never seen that video, I will make sure to share it with you after this recording. My last question, Dan, for you, before I move to you, Pat, to get your experience of playing The Adventures of Batman and Robin is how does this game, Dan, feel to play today as an adult? Has your perspective on the game changed as you've grown up and video game technology has improved or, or
1: what is it like looking back and playing this game again? It's still torture playing this game. It's, <laughs> it's brutal. Like, you know, you think like, all right, I'm like almost 40. I got this. I could beat this game, right? That a stupid 11 year old me couldn't do. no. This game is stupid hard. I don't know what they were thinking by making that second level so stupidly long, making it so that you lose so much of your power up every time you die, because you will die a lot in this game, making it such an uphill battle for the entire time. Like, if they simplified it, maybe gave you some checkpoints, I don't know. They could have done so much just to make it more user-friendly, just more accessible. And I think it really could have been, like, a really popular game but it's just the difficulty is just ridiculous i was gonna say this is a game that could 100 use a difficulty setting like in the main menu for sure a difficulty setting maybe a password or a save you know especially because that second level is too stupidly long like everybody checks out at that second level and then if you make it to the third level you're gonna die anyway because you used up all your power-ups just flying yeah it's still hard i can't <laughs> i'm sorry i made you guys play it kind of not really good music though huh soundtrack still top tier for me though the music is fantastic and it explains why
0: literally in the options menu before you even play the game you can listen to all the songs soundtrack just sitting there
1: yeah i used to do that all the time as a kid this was one of the games where i used to take my little tiny tape recorder hit record and actually just record off of my tv and just so I can listen to it like you later. Yeah, I did that, Pat. Don't look at me like that. You didn't know that? I'm not laughing at that. I just, I, when we get to me, oh my God, I'm going to have such a different
2: opinion. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you worry, Pat.
0: You're going to have so much time to vent. It is interesting, literally between the soundtrack choices and the difficulty level, I don't think it was a reskin of something. I think they just went wild with this one. But if you were to look at the demographics of what the average Adventures of Batman cartoon viewer was, it was honestly probably in the ages of like 7 to like 12 years old. And so for them to make a game with that IP like this and release it with this soundtrack, which goes so hard, and the game, which is so extremely difficult, that... I will admit, I, I was using like four game genie cheats just to be able to make it to the end of the game. And I did not feel bad because even with those game genie cheats on, I was dying so many times. It was so insane that I just don't know what they were thinking. I mean, like you could reskin this game as a Contra game and change none of the fundamentals. Don't change the soundtrack, just change what the characters look like. And it would be perfectly at home in that universe. It'd be the hardest Contra game, I'll tell you that. <laughs> One more thing that really stood out to me though is... So the second to last boss is the Mad Hatter, I think, right? And you have this... Amazing, beautiful, graphically impressive level where Chef's Kiss, where you've got this 3D, it almost looks like a track
2: out of Mario Kart, but you've got like this 3D road that's kind of coming at you. Yeah. The mode seven coming at you with all the walls that you have to move around that his hat blocks that you can't see. Yeah.
0: The different playing cards that are jumping and he's flying around in his hat and there's this amazing 3D effect of this road coming at you and it's looping around and it's so cool. And then the last boss you fight is Mr. Freeze in, like, this boring, dull 2D background. (laughs) Just flip those two. It just feels so weird that the second-to-last boss is, like, probably the best-looking moment in the game.
1: Best-looking moment, best song of the whole game. I mean, it really peaks at the Mad Hatter boss. It really does. Yeah, interesting
0: choice by those guys. Okay, Pat, did you have previous experience with the adventures of Batman and
2: Robin? And if so, why was your childhood so hard? I did not and believe like for as as big of a bat fan as I am, I no idea how it never came across either of this, like any system, but yeah, never played it. So I was actually initially excited initially, initially. Yeah. And then it began (laughs) and then the rage kicked in. I actually opened up my phone while you were talking to Dan. I was just so I could get the exact phrasing because I had texted him while I was playing it and the thing to him batman and robin you bet your ass i'm using the level skip cheat there's nothing fun about this <laughs> i couldn't get past the first level and i'm just like what is happening and i'm 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 throwing all the batarangs i'm jump kicking more than anything cuz that's more effective i'm punching i'm headbutting and just nothing's working and uh, it just keeps going and going i was like okay how many big clowns are going to break out of the bank and then i go inside the bank to beat them up. How like the bank's on fire, guys. They're blowing up. Get out. Everybody that way. If they cut the amount of enemies on the screen at a time in half, maybe it'd be
0: doable. What doesn't help with that feeling of endless difficulty, when will this hell end? Is that the backgrounds, while visually impressive because of that kind of 2.5
2: D look, especially in that first level where you're almost doing a pseudo top down on the buildings. Right. And you can jump up to the top, but they you can't hit anybody below you, but they're bubble bullets can still hit you so it's pointless to go up there yes but i think what makes the levels feel
0: so long i mean in addition to just being very long is that the backgrounds remain the same the basically the entire time so the entire time you're running outside of the bank you've got that cool 2.5 d background but it's the same background just looping over and over again
2: right so ironically while the music never loops The background does. (laughs) Yep, it's just one constant piece of paper getting wrapped through. It's just the same exact thing.
0: Yes. And so you feel like King Sisyphus just rolling this boulder up the hill (laughs) as the backgrounds continue
2: to repeat. So I, I feel your pain. What did you like about the game, Pat? I thought the graphics were great. Animations were great. And also I thought the fact that you could have that much motion on the screen at one time with no slowdown or glitching is impressive. Slowdown might have helped you beat the game, though. That's fair, actually. (laughs) Uh, That might be about where I end on liking it. I know that it was a bit of an
0: advertising gimmick in the 1990s uh, during the Genesis does what Nintendo don't commercials, but the blast processing really did help sometimes with the Genesis being able to display more sprites on screen without experiencing slowdown compared to the Super Nintendo. That's fair. Yep in your opinion having gone into this game absolutely fresh pat having no previous experience with it difficulty aside do you feel like the game holds up at all 30 years later
2: or do you feel like it really does show its age yeah it holds up to the point where i think it would be just as aggravating then as it is now difficulty wise like there's no way being a kid you're doing that if again like dan said at 40 yeah you can't be like okay maybe jump kicking is my best method here and you do that but there's no timing of any way they all just drop and they come out of every corner so it's not you're going to sit there and find some algorithm on it as far as the game itself I mean graphics wise yes it holds up I think I, I love the animated series like all of them personally so does it look like that yes I would have honestly preferred it to have more of that Danny Elfman kind of sound like the trumpets and the flare it would have been nice if there had been something
0: beyond the visuals that evoked Batman and Robin just a little bit right But
2: no, that was not the game. And I will say I did not play as Robin at all, because why would you if you can pick Batman? True. Although, and this is a call out to the console wars review of these games, (laughs) is that in the
0: adventures of Batman and Robin for the Super Nintendo, you cannot play as Robin. So the title in that version of the game is rather deceiving. It's a single player game in which you can never play as Robin at
1: all. Yep. It's a lie. It's a lie. (laughs) Yeah. Robin somewhere. He's there. He's there. He's a character in there. You uh, talk to him sometimes. Hey, old chum. Yeah. Glad to see you here, but we're not playing as you because it's a solo game That first or that Super Nintendo version. It's too dangerous. Go back to the house. Alfred made you a snack. (laughs)
0: Uh, The most of the Robin in the Genesis version of the game was all the time. It felt like the game was Robin for me with its difficulty levels. Yeah, I like that. Speaking of incredibly difficult games from the early to mid 90s, Pat, let's talk about Earthworm Jim for the Sega Genesis.
1: <clears throat> that is a very,
0: very good impression. I just thought of
1: doing it and I did it, and I'm happy you liked it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Let me see here. Okay, so it looks like the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo versions of Earthworm Jim came out on the same day. That was April 26th, 1994. And actually, from the 2013 Earthworm Jim episode of Console Wars, Dan, you wrote, quote, We both played the SNES version growing up. It was quite the surprise that the Sega was better. That's part of why we do this show, to answer questions that have haunted us since our childhoods. I like that use of the word haunted. I do too. I used to be that eloquent in my writing. (laughs) (laughs) I just imagine like Dan at 30 literally being unable to sleep because he's haunted by which version of Earthworm Jim is better.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which one's better? Which one's better?
2: It is an echo of a whisper of yesteryear.
0: So Pat, you chose the Genesis version specifically, and for anyone in our audience who's unfamiliar with Earthworm Jim, Earthworm Jim was originally developed for the Sega Genesis, and the Super Nintendo version was actually a port of the Genesis version, which is why today many people still consider the Genesis version of Earthworm Jim to be its superior version. Describe your first experience with Earthworm Jim for the Genesis, Pat, and did you have a Genesis and Super Nintendo growing up, or were you just a Genesis kid?
2: Uh, A little bit of both. So I personally had the Sega Genesis and my brother had the Super Nintendo. So we we just always assume the games are the same for each system. So we never really looked into it. So we'd buy one for the other. Like, remember back then, if a new game was coming out on like the release day, half the time Sega was out or Super Nintendo was out. So we got whatever game was left in stock for the system. We didn't really have. aversion to either one at the time we're just like we can still play it don't care little did you know
0: that had you bought the adventures of batman and robin for both the super nintendo and sega genesis at that age you would have learned a valuable lesson i would have
2: learned and i would have (laughs) i would have been on my 30th year of console wars and dan would not have a show
1: yeah exactly i was about to say (laughs) you might have started console wars
2: (laughs) shooting on a handheld dv cam back in the 90s Mm -hmm. but from what i remember i had earthworm jim the first one for sega genesis but then we got the second one. Super Nintendo, which, again, no real reason behind it. I think it was just how the cards fell. You lucked
0: out because Earthworm Jim 2 for the Super Nintendo is considered the superior version. Funny enough, the Genesis version of Earthworm Jim 1 is considered the better version, and Earthworm Jim 2 for the Super Nintendo is considered the better version, which I think, if I'm recalling correctly, Earthworm Jim 2...
1: Or the Super Nintendo won that particular console war. Yes, that is how the amazing web series of console wars decided those games. Yes.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what I like the fact that uh, Tommy Talarico actually follows us on uh, console wars and he actually comments every now and then. Yeah, usually the games that he does the soundtracks for. That's cool. I follow him on, I think it's Instagram and maybe also Facebook. But he still does a bunch of new Earthworm Jim, like comics and material. And it's just so cool to watch, like the hand-drawn sketches of everything. That is really cool. That is really cool. I love
0: stuff like that. Take the audience back to that period of time because I think it helps us ground how Earthworm Jim came to be and why Earthworm Jim, which is an original IP, was about an literal earthworm in a spacesuit who is granted the ability to walk and talk by that spacesuit and has a ray gun and can fling himself around with his head. If you don't have the context for what was happening in cartoons in the mid-90s, a lot of this isn't going to make sense. Right. This was the era of Ren and Stimpy. This was the era of Rocco's Modern Life. It was the era of wacky children's cartoons about anthropomorphized animals doing vaguely inappropriate things with often disturbing animation. Anyone who remembers Ren and Stimpy remembers those extreme close-ups where they would like zoom in on something and it would be absolutely
2: disgusting. Yeah. I'm also good friends with Bob Camp, who is the illustrator for Ren and Stimpy, Spongebob. And he does all the hand drawing thing like at conventions and stuff. He'll he'll do requests for you. And that's awesome. Were you watching those cartoons as a kid? Oh, absolutely. I think the last thing, as you just even mentioned, the last cartoon I was really into on Nickelodeon before we got into like the newer era was probably Rocco's Modern Life. And I absolutely loved Rocco. So good. Yeah.
0: I still have the visual of... Like his friend who was a cow mm-hmm. eating a whole chicken and spitting out the bones, but the bones are still in the form of the chicken. And those visuals from that era were so weird and distinctive that they imprint on your
2: mind. One thing that will always live in my mind from that series is just turn the page, wash your hands, turn the page, wash your hands. Like just Filbert
1: going through the uh, comic books and like just wash his hands after everything. yeah. I have the images of so many butts from Ren and Stimpy just burned into my brain. Oh. The very zoomed in, very detailed butts. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, Jesus, there's a lot of butts in this show.
2: <laughs> Jokes weren't the only thing they were cracking. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, there's so many weird throwaway lines that I still use to this day for Ren and Stimpy. Really? What's one of your faves? I actually say this one to Dan all the time. Just stop what you're doing and whisper,
1: call the police.
2: <laughs> There's that one, and uh, no, but do you have any rubber walrus protectors? And it's like it's from the same episode, it's just such a weird thing. It's like they have this Buffalo Bill type character kidnapping Ren and Stimpy, and he kidnaps him because he's a rubber nipple salesman, <laughs> and then he wears the nipples on his knees. It's like, what is this? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's so deranged in the most wonderful way, like you can look back at some of it now and be like, was this appropriate for kids? But in reality, it pretty much was. It was tapping into a kind of humor that kids love, like in the same way that Roll Dahl was so impactful on me as a child. And why kids continue to love it today is that like adults might read Roll Dahl and be like, oh, isn't this kind of mean spirited? Or isn't the way that he's describing some of these characters a little offensive? And I think for kids, though, Roll Dahl's semi offensive, semi mean spirited descriptions of these people who were just like enormous and had hair growing out of their face and like, All these wild descriptions of characters, you eat that up as a kid. And I think similarly, watching Ren and Stimpy doing those crazy Mm close-ups, you feel like you're in on a secret. Right? When you're watching Ren and Stimpy, you're like, oh my gosh, I hope my mom doesn't walk in. (laughs) Even though, again, it's a close-up of a cartoon, but it's not anything terrible. But because the show kind of makes you feel like you're watching something a little lurid and something you shouldn't be watching as a 12-year-old... You almost feel like you have the secret pact with the animators of the show. And that feels like you're
2: part of something. It's definitely that. I also feel like it's like that younger age. You're super into the gross out humor. Exactly what you said. But in my mind, as you're saying it, I'm even thinking back to like Garbage Pail Kids. Oh, yeah. Garbage Pail Kids. It's these cute little things that are just disgusting. And I mean, uh, they were a riff on
0: Cabbage Patch Kids, which were huge in the 80s. Yes, exactly. Yes. Garbage Pail Kids were kind of mocking that in the same way that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles originally started out as a comic book that was a meta commentary on how absurd comic books were. Mm-hmm. And then ironically became so popular that its mainstreamification stripped out all the meta commentary
2: and just became a popular animated children's show. Yep. <laughs> I love the originals, like the black and white comics. I mean, super violent. Mm -hmm. Nobody had different color bands. They were either all red or black and white.
0: Okay, so in the context of the era of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Rocko's Modern Life and Ren and Stimpy and Garbage Pail Kids enters Earthworm Jim and you're playing it for the first time. Walk us through like your first impressions of the game, which, again, was an original IP. What was it like playing it? How did it impact you?
2: To me, I will always stand out in my mind because the humor aspect of it. You had the voiceovers that were hysterical. You had the backgrounds are what got me first. They look so realistic, but I mean, like you're playing a comic book. They just look so good. Your foregrounds, it had that 3D effect enough where it gave you depth. So you have a mountain of rubble in the front with tires and boxes and stuff sticking out of it. But then you have a whole world behind it. and It's all like these vibrant purples, blues. You have the sky with like shimmering stars. And e- sometimes there's even like a mid layer, which is your ground that you're walking on is. But just every time like you jump, you get that yeehaw, and it just I don't know. It was something about it. It was just like one of the most fun and almost just because of the animations and the sounds, it almost just seemed a little more interactive than some other games. Like it was like you were playing a cartoon or a live action comic book. Yes.
0: Yeah, it, it had a similar feel to me, because I, I grew up with the Super Nintendo and I remember playing Earthworm Jim at that time, but I didn't have a Genesis. But I remember playing Earthworm Jim, to your point, Pat, felt to me similar to the magic of going to a friend's house and seeing Aladdin on the Genesis. Mm-hmm. Like when I saw Aladdin on the Genesis with that animation, which was hand drawn by Disney animators <laughs> and seeing that fluidity and the quality of it, seeing that and comparing it to the Super Nintendo version of Aladdin, which was no slouch. It was a fun game to play, a very different game. But seeing that hand-drawn animation on a 16-bit console, as a kid, there's certain things you just don't notice as a child that you notice as an adult. I was a huge fan of the X-Men cartoons growing up and also the Spider-Man cartoons. Oh, yeah. And I remember when I was in college, I was at Best Buy and I saw it was a best of the animated Spider Man series. And I was like, oh, I'm going to, I'll pick this up and I'll crack open a couple beers and have a nostalgic night. So I, I get the DVD. It's early 2000s now. I've been maybe 10, 12 years since I'd seen the animated Spider Man show. I put in the DVD. I've got my Lagunitas IPA. I'm ready to go. <laughs> First episode starts playing. And I was like, I don't remember the animation being so god awful.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. The animation in the animated Spider Man show is horrendous. Like it is 12 frames of animation, but I don't remember it that way. And I think similarly, although I think there might be more frames of animation in Earthworm Jim than there were in the animated Spider-Man series, (laughs) when you're that age and 16-bit is all you know, that's cutting edge and animation like Earthworm Jim or Aladdin for the Genesis, you're not viewing it from an adult perspective of, well, it's not quite what an animated series would be in your eyes when you're watching it you're like this is as good
2: as the shows and movies i watch yeah 100% as time went on everybody tried to do like the 3d modeled versions like there was a 3d earthworm gym that was terrible they they all tried to go the crash bandicoot route yes like that over the over the shoulder kind of view and it was just so horribly done and like if you put mario kart 64 on a big screen tv now you have all those like just cubes and it just hurts your eyes that's what that looked like as a finished product Yes, and we'll
0: get into this in a bit about why I think the 16-bit era stands the test of time better than the first era of 3D gaming like the PlayStation and the Nintendo 64, I think for exactly that reason, Pat. Mm-hmm. But before that, I'm going to get a beer. I'll be right back.
1: All right. You know
0: If he's got a beer, I'm going to a beer, too. Okay, where were we? In addition to having like a completely original IP, which obviously comes with completely original visuals, it also had a completely original soundtrack and i actually have the theme from new junk city which is the first level in the game for both the genesis and the super nintendo because perhaps not as an extreme a difference as the genesis and super nintendo versions of the adventures of batman and robin which dan cursed us with a great soundtrack you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) the soundtrack was great i will be listening to the soundtrack on the ride home but i will never play the game again good your ride is never going (laughs) to (laughs) end I'm just going to be looping around the block waiting to park. (laughs) You'll loop around, but the music won't. Ah. (laughs) Hey, it'll be here all night, folks. Remember to tip your waitress. But the Genesis and Super Nintendo versions of Earthworm Jim were actually quite different and mostly in the sound department. I'm going to start with the Super Nintendo version of the music from the first level, New Junk City, because I think it's not as good as the Genesis version, which will play second. So first, here's the Super Nintendo version of that song. And this is the Sega Genesis version of New Junk City, which is, as you can tell, slightly different. One of the big reasons why Genesis versions of soundtracks and Super Nintendo versions of soundtracks sound is so different is that they just had entirely different chipsets. The Genesis didn't have as many of the capabilities in terms of being able to play as many instruments at once as the Super Nintendo did. But it seemed to, and I'm not exactly sure why, you might have some insight on this, Dan, coming from your your musical background. The Genesis seemed to be able to produce a more robust bass, regardless of the game. Do you have any idea why? Like, the Sega Genesis is musical abilities suited games like the adventures of batman and robin really well and streets of rage 2 because it was so good at reproducing a very bassy synth and it always felt like the super nintendo struggled with bass in a way the sega genesis
2: didn't do either of you happen to have any insight as to why that was i mean i think you're on point with the chip thing but any game i've always said on sega always has that what you are saying the base which i perceive from sega is more that low crunch you have that sound that comes out of Sega that you'll never get out of Nintendo. It's just like, when you have a video game where a punch sound is like a splash sound, Sega
1: just makes a song out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking just like, I don't know the exact reason, but I always noticed Super Nintendo tends to sound like the actual instrument. If you want to hear a horn, or if you want to hear like a violin, you'll hear that, but it won't exactly sound like a horn. It'll almost sound like a horn or a violin, like somebody's recording it like on the tape recorder, but it sounds like it. But the Genesis couldn't do that, so instead of trying to sound like an instrument, they're just like, all right, we got this more of a chip y sound on the Genesis, so we're just going to go for it. And just this grit, this buzz, this bass sound that they really did really well. They just embraced it fully, and then it could sound like that. It, it didn't have to sound like something else, is what I'm saying. Yeah. It had its own type of sound, and they were able to just utilize that really well. As opposed to Super Nintendo, where it, it did sound like something, but not like a perfect version of it. So that maybe that's why it sounded like so thin compared to the bass sound of the Sega Genesis. And this is why almost every episode I bring up instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good insight. And honestly, it speaks to the broader topic of when a Genesis version was able to stand up against a Super Nintendo version of a game in kind of any capacity is when the developers of the Genesis game leaned in to the limitations of the Genesis and didn't try to do exactly what Nintendo did. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, because the Super Nintendo literally came out two years after the Genesis, that's two years of technical advancement, the Genesis just wasn't capable of doing, reproducing some of the graphical elements or some of the musical elements or sound effects that the Super Nintendo was. The Genesis adaptations of games always did best when instead of trying to do exactly what Nintendo was capable of, they found a way around it. And I think the adventures of Batman and Robin is a great example of that. And I think also the Genesis version of Earthworm Jim.
1: Again, thank you, Michael, for taking my words and making
0: it eloquent. Yes. It's like Google Translate, but it's just Michael Translate. (laughs) Michael Translate. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Google, translate my words to sober. (laughs) I know this is a bad idea, but I could take to drinking while doing this podcast more often. I'm feeling loose. (laughs) Loosey-goosey. I'm having an IPA from one of my favorite breweries, Fremont Brewery. It's in Seattle, from the neighborhood of Fremont specifically. And this is an IPA called Lush, and it is delicious. If you have it where you are, where you live, I highly recommend it. Okay, so this was also an incredibly difficult game. Not Adventures of Batman and Robin level difficult, but I will admit I did not make it all the way through. None of my game genie cheats worked. I tried to get as far in as I possibly could. I found the controls to be less precise than I would have liked. It felt like there was a lot of room for error in terms of where you could be on a platform before jumping off.
2: He's a very loose jumper, that Jim. I remember that very well. Like you jump and you just float. It gives you there's like five animations in a jump. Like you go up, arms out, feet up and then back down. Yes, that's actually a really good point, Pat. I've had this frustration
0: with Aladdin, another beautifully animated game. I think one of the weaknesses of both of those games is that in some ways they are over-animated. There are certain times in which, and I just watched this amazing video on why Celeste, which is a modern 2D platformer. Have either of you played Celeste, by the way? I have not. Oh, highly recommend it. Okay. And highly recommend to anyone listening. It's about this woman who is climbing up a mountain to get over some depression she's working through. That's just the impetus for what starts the game. But it's this platformer where you have to climb up this mountain and it's a lot of platforming and a lot of very difficult platforming. But the game never feels frustrating because the way that they animate the game, the animations that don't involve precision are more detailed than the animations that involve precision. So like the animations for like her jumping and landing are actually fewer frames than the animations that don't require precision work at all. And I feel like in the case of Earthworm Jim, in the case of Aladdin two beautifully hand-drawn games, you have this situation where sometimes the animation, the beautiful animation, works against the purpose of platforming because there's too much. You're more worried about the form over the function. Yes, that's exactly right. And I, I feel like that was a point of frustration for me. Thinking back on when you were playing it, Pat, what's something that really stood out? Like, is there a level or a moment from the game as a child that you can remember? Obviously, you've just replayed it as an adult. But is there a really good quality or good moment from the game that you can remember? And is there something you remember being a kid and being really frustrated
2: about? The underwater board in the bubble, that is the most frustrating in the tubes. So that brought up multiple points of frustration. First off, no kid should have that level of anxiety yet. You wait till at least 13 on that. So you're saying that was even more anxiety inducing than that
0: section where you have to helicopter your head down a funnel of spikes on both sides? You know what? In my
1: opinion, yeah. Dude, seriously. You see the cracks in your little submarine thing and then it's just like, every hit, like, more cracks, more cracks. It's just like, and then you see the time. You got the time and you're like, the cracks, time, cracks. You're just freaking out, man. It sucks. It, it's stressful.
2: I have that and then my other point of contention, number two. Yeah. And this goes back all the way to the first god-awful Ninja Turtles game. You are an earthworm. If you get wet or if you get submerged, you're going to be just fine, man. The turtles fall in the water. If they fall in a sewer, you live in the sewer, you died. You fall in the water, you died.
1: Well, worms don't do good in the water. That's why they got to come out during the rain, right? Isn't that why they come out in the rain? Because they don't like the water. Am I wrong? I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's accurate at all. Is that not why they come out in the rain? Because they they're get drowned in the water, in the, in the earth. I just Googled it
0: and Google says, quote, the worms can't get enough oxygen when the soil is flooded, so they come to the surface to breathe. Well,
1: well, Pat, you're welcome for learning that.
0: (laughs) But to your point, though, one, I'm a bit upset with you for recalling perhaps the most traumatic video game from my childhood, which is the 8-bit Nintendo version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I never beat that game. I don't think anybody did. I don't think it had an end. You want to talk about anxiety,
2: the underwater level in Ninja Turtles... With the eels and you can't touch the sides, it's the same effect. If you touch the sides, you get hurt, you die. I don't know which game from the Ape Nintendo
0: era gave me more frustration as a tiny little child. It was either huh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or DuckTales. Oh. Both of those games were so
2: relentlessly brutal at that age. I remember playing DuckTales and I remember loving DuckTales. And I don't remember having the same rage towards it as I did Ninja Turtles. But that might be something I might go back and play now just to see what you're talking about. I don't remember having any anxiety. I think you guys just sucked at video games. (laughs) I thought you were going to say Ghostbusters, not DuckTales. Well, DuckTales was hard in a
0: way... So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was difficult in like... I think it was like a CIA psyop to ruin the mental fortitude of children. Mm -hmm. DuckTales was more difficult in the way that like the original Mega Man, the 8-bit Mega Man was difficult in that it was like very unforgiving with some of its platform elements. Yes. But we're in the weeds now. (laughs) Did you get a chance to touch on both of your points
2: of frustration as a kid with Earthworm Jim? Honestly, I think the only thing... The frustrating point was the bubble, the the glass that was 100%. All I remember, I would say watching your ammo count go down, but you know, you're just going to find a box of ammo while you're shooting at Psychro anyway. It's like all the stuff that falls out at you.
1: It goes up. If you're less than 100, it goes up automatically anyway.
2: Yeah, I did love the fact that as you're shooting, you see the shells shooting out of the gun with the big guns. The animations were amazing. My only point of contention is that stupid bubble. And even the helicopter thing with the spikes, I don't remember having a horrible time with that. Was it the animation
0: as a kid that stood out the most? Was that the thing that really grabbed you? Or were there any particular gameplay elements? The question behind the question, Pat, is is before we get to your honorable mentions, which I'd love to hear, is what was it about this game that reached out to you through time 30 years later? And you were like, this is the game I want Dan and Michael to play.
2: Uh, the fact that it's it's a popular game, but it's not like a tentpole game. It was very big. It did spawn a cartoon, toys, comics, all of it. But. You know, it's not a Mario. It's not a Sonic. It's not one of these major properties. And as you said, it's an independent, which I loved. They get away with a lot more. The music I thought was great. The feel of it. I remember just enjoying it so much and I would just play it to death and just keep going back over and over. I do remember beating it. My brother, and we didn't have Game Genie or anything, but we were surely not above cheat codes. So I couldn't tell you if we used them or not. I don't remember. And they have a lot of cheat codes
0: in the game, like a bunch of like up, down, left, right, A, B, A, B style cheat codes. Mm -hmm. One that allowed you to unlock a cheat menu that you could then select from. There is a burger chain in the West Coast. I'm sure you've heard of it called In-N-Out. I've had it. It's delicious. Oh, it is delicious. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) That is the appropriate thing to say, lest you get censored. Mm -hmm. It's delicious, but the menu for In-N-Out is rather sparse. But the secret menu has become so lengthy at this point that it's like three times the length of the actual menu. And I feel like that same thing with Earthworm Jim. There's so many up down ABAB style cheats for the game that it's like it could be a book in and of itself. It's almost like you had a game with modern day mods. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Okay, so what were your honorable mentions? What games did you almost choose instead of the one you picked and why?
2: So you brought up X-Men earlier, X-Men one and two for the Sega Genesis are probably two of my favorite games. Both great picks. There was one for the Super Nintendo, and I always get these confused because I think they were both from Capcom. The first one is not. I want to say the first one was a claim. Not 100%, but I mean, the first one on Sega, we want to go back to that crunch sound. The entire thing was just that. wow. Every other sound effects was, was that. But it had what were, you had Gambit, Nightcrawler, Cyclops, Wolverine. And then you had all the helper characters. So like Rogue would come through and just punch everybody. The sequel had a few more characters,
0: but I think that's the lineup for the first one.
2: Mm -hmm. And then you had Archangel. He would come through and blast everything on screen. But I mean, you're you're playing. What do you have? You were like the prehistoric world, Asteroid M, Mojo's Planet. Like it was just things from the comics, more so from that than the cartoon that it was just more of a deep dive or deep cuts for me. And it was, if you play it now, yeah, it's a little blurry looking, but it just looks a little more realistic than the Capcom ones, but it still holds up.
1: Both of them hold up great. Soundtrack is fucking beautiful. I love the first soundtrack of that. Just turn it on.
2: It's so good. During like quarantine COVID times, we kept doing a bunch of these live streams just to A, keep ourselves entertained, but just reach out and interact with everybody. And we were playing all these games. Where Dan would pick music and I would pick music from either video games or just actual songs and try to guess albums or the game. And I think one of the first ones he did was from that and it was Asteroid M. I was like, come on, is this how we're doing this? The way that I actually discovered the X Men games a week ago, I never played these two particular
0: games as a kid. I discovered them because as I was doing research on the adventures of Batman and Robin for the Genesis and I was listening to the soundtrack on YouTube, I literally started reading the comments and some of the comments would be, This is one of my favorite soundtracks for the Genesis right up there with X-Men. And people would start calling it out and I'd be like, huh. So then I don't do this at home, kids, but I pulled up a ROM of X-Men 1 and 2 and I started playing and the soundtrack is really great. But the only way I discovered these games is literally because there is an entire community on the internet that is enthusiastic about these really underrated hidden gems of soundtracks in Sega Genesis games.
2: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's funny that that would have been my second pick. I'm always on the fence with using those like Earthworm Jim was a weird pull for me. That one just popped into mind mostly because of the art aspect of it. But yeah, if I hadn't picked Earthworm Jim, you probably would have gotten one of those.
0: Now, as a fan of comic books in the 90s, as a fan of that art style and seemingly as a fan of incredibly difficult games on the Genesis, did you ever play Comics Zone as a kid?
2: Surprisingly, no. I, fu- I fucking hate that game.
1: You get <laughs> hurt from punching. Fuck that.
2: (laughs) I remember seeing it I was like, this guy just looks like a douchebag Rob Liefeld on the cover, like with his ponytail. (laughs) That's so funny. I was just like, I don't know if I want to
0: try that. It's a very hard game. I mean, it is beautiful. Again, speaking to this is so inside baseball, but it's a bonus episode, so I don't care. (laughs) But it is yet another example of a developer leaning into the limitations of the Genesis and making a beautiful game. A frustrating game that I've never beaten, but a very beautiful game.
1: It's a really cool idea to to like be jumping from comic panel to comic panel. Yes. It's like, wow, that's so cool and refreshing. And like you had options too. It wasn't linear exactly, right? You can go up, you can go down, Mm -hmm. but then it's, hey, you're punching a guy and you're losing life. That's stupid. What? What is this,
0: real life? Right. What's my health insurance like in this game? (laughs) I'm imagining this only because I can't think of another reason why they would have done this, but I can imagine some idiot in a boardroom being like, hey, you know what? I was in a bar fight a couple of weeks ago. And I punched a guy and it hurt. (laughs) And I'm thinking like, how come there's never been a game where when you punch a dude in the game, it hurts you like it hurt me when I was in that bar fight. Like he loses five life, but I lose two. Otherwise, I can't figure a reason other than some dedication to ultra realism in a comic
2: book game. (laughs) Right. Like going back to one of the old characters like that. Yeah, I like what you're saying. What else you got for me? Like little shaky hands. Let's give him a ponytail. (laughs) Jean shorts. I'm in. Oh, jorts. We say jorts here. Jorts. Exactly. (laughs) The jorts. And he's got to have the sleeveless plaid over a t-shirt. And he had fingerless gloves. I'm pretty sure I had fingerless gloves, too, which was very 90s. Everybody did. Okay, Dan,
0: as someone who was recommended Earthworm Jim, what was it like returning to the game as an adult? I know that you've done a review of Earthworm Jim for Console Wars, but that was, I think, nine years ago.
1: So what was it like jumping back in? So I'll just preface this again um, with what you said that I had grown up playing the Super Nintendo version. And honestly, you said, Michael, you said you played the Super Nintendo one in preparation for this, right? Yes, I did play a little bit of the Genesis version, but mostly the, the Super Nintendo. I honestly felt it was better than I remember. And because I had grown up with the Super Nintendo version. So there were many instances when I was playing the game where I was like, wow, that felt a lot tighter than it would have on Super Nintendo. Like you guys had talked about, there's like too much emphasis on the animation and it causes like a delay in the controls perhaps. But like the main thing that I hated was how you got to whip and grapple yourself across like a couple of like the hooks. Yeah, Yeah, the hooks, all the hooks. Yeah, you got to get the hooks and then you got to get hooks in a row. And getting the hooks in a row was always like a problem for me on Super Nintendo. But like when I was playing the Genesis version last night, it was like, wow, this is a lot tighter than I remember. So I think the Genesis actually has slightly better controls. And I had a lot of fun playing Earthworm Jim. And, and a first for me, I actually found the secret level. I had never found the secret level without the cheat code. Really? Yeah. Like I never beat the game without the cheat code. I I still haven't to this day, either version, but I remember getting that level select code. So you can go to any level when I was a kid. And I remember like going to that room where it's all dark. All I can see is Jim's eyes other characters eyes and i never understood what is the secret level this is so stupid but last night i was able to get to level five it's on level five and i randomly jumped in one stupid area i was just trying to get a better view and i got transported to this secret level and i was with my wife and i was just like having the best time of my life <laughs> i was like oh my god i found the secret level i haven't found this in my entire life this was amazing and I, I died because <laughs> <laughs> I got to the big eyes. I got to the big eyes, the big eyes. I didn't know what the fuck to do with the big eyes. So I just ran and, and died, but I really enjoyed it. And I, I remembered why I like playing this game so much. It's just because the variety from level to level. Yeah. Maybe the first two levels are very similar, but like once you get to that, like, I know Pat, we have the same feeling about this. When you're in the water, it's completely different gameplay wise, but like that variety really draws you in. And then like the fourth level, when I'm doing snot a problem, when you're bungee jumping with major snot and you have to ram him into the sides of the wall, it's just to knock his ass into the pool. It's, the variety of that game was just so refreshing, especially back in the day where every level was like pretty much like uh, another variation. Like, all well, this level is an ice level, this one's a fire level. But like, Earthworm Gym was like the first game. It's like, no, it's completely different. I know you like shooting people, you like jumping and shit. But you're not going to do that because now you're just going to bungee jump. Now you're just going to whip this doggy so he can get home, right?
0: It was really cool. It was one of those things where I remember when I played this game first as a kid. And initially, I found that aspect of the game frustrating, but I can appreciate it more as an adult, because as a kid, you're trained to look at video games as, okay, first level, you're learning the basics of how this game plays, of how the character operates, like what it feels like to control the character... What is the template for how this game controls, et cetera, et cetera, right? And you can see this in the very first Super Mario game. You get introduced to what the enemies look like, that you jump up and you can hit a block, that you can upgrade yourself with a mushroom. First level teaches you the basics. The second level introduces a more intermediate level of difficulty and so on and so on until you get towards the middle and end of the game. And The game is just a harder version of the game that you played when you first started it. Yeah, just bigger jumps with like a single pillar. Exactly. Oh, I have to be that much more precise in my jumps and the the enemy's even harder and I have to predict their movement, yada, yada. Earthworm Jim threw all that out Because to your point, Dan, yeah, the first couple levels are similar. And then, oh, okay, now I'm on the back of a rocket racing a cat in an astronaut suit. (laughs) And then after that, I'm doing like an escort level with a dog where I have to try and keep this dog alive. And then I'm bungee jumping. And as a kid, I'm like, this feels unfair. You've been training me to expect this type of game. And I've been trying to practice to get good at this style of game in the same way that I'm getting good at Super Mario World and I'm getting better as a platformer so that by level 10, If I die, I don't feel like I've been taken advantage of because you've set me up for this game. And with Earthworm Jim, I'm recalling it now, that was frustrating for me because I'm like, wait, you taught me that it was this kind of game. So I practiced this kind. Now I'm at this level and I'm sucking (laughs) and I feel like it's unfair that I suck.
1: (laughs) You didn't prep me to suck this way exactly if if i may make a callback it's like a jesper kid soundtrack it's not the same thing over and over again it might feel the same but it, it changes and then like it only gets better on repeated plays right yeah the more you play it the more you appreciate it like yeah i hated it i was like why am i in this stupid submarine that cracks i just want to shoot people but as an adult you want to talk i'm getting a little ahead but like has it aged well. Like it's, It only gets better yeah. with age because the more you play it, the more you appreciate it because you appreciate those subtle nuances like, oh, now we're doing this, now we're doing this. And it's not the same boring thing over and over again. As an adult, you really appreciate that. And if you've played that since your childhood, you're playing it as an adult, oh my God, it's like so refreshing compared to all the other games that you've played as a kid. Variety is the spice of life. Yeah, so it is just so good. Also, by the way, I just want to throw this out there. I think this was the first... Game on EGM magazine back in the day to get a perfect score. You can praise Electronic Gaming Monthly until the cows come home. I was a huge
0: fan. I had dual subscriptions to Nintendo Power and Electronic Gaming Monthly for the entirety of my childhood. I think I was subscribing to Nintendo Power since maybe like issue seven or eight. Oh, wow. And then I went to a friend's house. So you have issue 92 where my name is in. excellent, excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine I did. But I remember going to his house and he was like, you know, I have issue one of Nintendo Power. And I was like, what? And he brought it out. I feel like I could hear the voices of angels as he <laughs> as he showed me issue one of Nintendo Power. Slight tangent, but I think an important one is that one of the reasons that I want to explore like 16-bit video games with the two of you and and why we're eventually going to get to the conversation of why has that era stayed with people of our generation so much? Why is that era continuing to get replicated in modern games. Why is that style holding up so well? Is I think that it's attached to something broader, something bigger than just the games, right? It's attached to a culture that kind of no longer exists. There was a feeling, a ramp up of emotion that would happen in the days preceding getting your copy of EGM in the mail or getting your copy of Nintendo Power in the mail. And this is going to sound cheesy to anyone who hasn't experienced this, but I'm hoping that the people listening who maybe weren't big video game nerds like the three of us were, have something that they can call to that evokes something similar. When there wasn't the internet, or all the internet was, was like AOL chat rooms where people who were probably 50 years old were talking to you and they shouldn't have. When the internet was so nascent that the only information you could get about the things you cared about were from printed magazine subscriptions... It's like you got to experience Christmas 12 times a year Yeah, because every time that magazine arrived in the mail, you got either news from a foreign country that you never saw that seemed like the future was being invented every single month. I remember reading about the things that were coming out of Japan at that age and being like, they live in the future over there. (laughs) Yeah, technically, they they still do. They have so (laughs) much cool stuff. (laughs) That's true. But beyond that, the 16-bit era of video games was bigger than just the games themselves because they encapsulated a culture, whether it was the magazine subscriptions, submitting your high score to a magazine like you did, Dan, and just everything around it that just doesn't exist anymore. That's what that era represents to me. It's not just the games themselves, but it's the anticipation of waiting for that copy of EGM. It's the anticipation of standing in line outside of the uh, electronics boutique Just before it opens up to wait for that game to come out.
1: Mm -hmm. It's a lost era for sure because of social media and like the internet, because you can get that news instantly. But like as a kid, you had to wait a whole month. So nobody knew anything until that new issue came in. And then maybe not everybody had a subscription to that. So when you got it, you had the insight first. I brought mine to school. Yeah, exactly. You have to go up to all your friends and be like, "Hey, you know what's coming out next month? Are you guys ready for this game? Because it's in the next Nintendo Power." Yep. And it's just like also like more of a sense of community too, because you're all getting the information together at the same time, where as supposed to like now, it's I can get it today, tomorrow doesn't matter. It's trending. It's not trending. Whatever the fuck, it's happening in social media.
2: Once upon a time, I got stuck playing a shitty Batman game. And I was like, oh, you know, what? I'm going to pull up my little pocket computer and look up the level skips. <laughs> Couldn't do that back then. I'd have to go through and be like,
1: hey, which magazine had this cheat code in the back three pages? Yeah. Kind of like your callback to Ren and Stimpy and shit, Michael. It's like, oh, this is a secret. We know all this stuff. And not everybody knows this stuff. Yes. You're like in this inside club and only the selected few know this information. And like you'd share it with. Only your friends that you wanted to share it with. It was it was a sort of like some snobbery <laughs> in your childhood because like, well, I'll only tell my cool friends and my lame friends like fuck off. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's like I remember getting home from school and
2: it was like going right to the mailbox and be like, it should be around this week. And you like, if you don't see the big bulky thing wrapped around the mail, you're just like, God damn it. No, you're right. I forgot about that. They would
0: treat the magazine like a taco shell. Yep. And then they would stuff all the other mail into the taco shell that was the magazine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You're right. You're right. But I think to your point, Dan, it's not so much that it's snobby. I get the point you're making there, but there is community in scarcity. You feel like you're part of a community when the information that you have or are trying to get is hard to get. Because then when you come across people who have that information, who know what you know, you feel a bond with them, And it's not like that's impossible today. But the fact you could start talking about something that I have no idea what you're talking about, Dan, and I could just Google it and know as much as you do, Mm -hmm. at least on that particular topic within seconds, I can Google, do worms come up when it rains? And then I know, right? But if this were the 90s and Pat were to say, worms can breathe underwater, (laughs) we (laughs) we would have no way to know whether or not that was true. You know, we would just have to go with what Pat said. It's the reason that the my uncle works at Nintendo meme exists. Are you guys familiar with this? My uncle works at Nintendo and he says that this game is going to have XYZ thing. I've seen it. It's because back then that whole idea of I have an in either because my copy of Nintendo Power arrived a day early or for some reason I have a friend of a friend who owns a GameStop and they were able to get me this game before it came out. You felt like you were part of something bigger. That is sadly hard to come by these days. Okay, I think we should turn to my pick, which was Super Mario Kart on the Super Nintendo, which came out on August 27th, 1992, a little under a year after the Super Nintendo debuted in the United States. And this was a hard pick for me. It was neck and neck. My honorable mentions were Batman Returns for the Super Nintendo, <laughs> nice. which was so hard not to pick. <laughs> Literally, Dan, it was almost going to be my pick. And then I saw that you chose the Adventures of Batman and Robin. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, it's fine. But I was like, we can't make this like a batman a I
2: was going to say, I would have just worn my Keaton mask the entire interview. <laughs> no one's going to see it.
0: <laughs> batman Returns was way up there for me because I picked my game based on not how I feel about it now, but what were some of the games that were literally just dominating my life back then and leaving a big impact? For me, it was Batman Returns, Killer Instinct, Donkey Kong Country, Zombies Ate My Neighbors, Super Mario World and Yoshi's Island, and then of course, Super Mario Kart. And between all those picks, Super Mario Kart felt like a good one because it's a racer, which diversifies the picks a little bit. But also, I have crystal clear fond memories of playing Super Mario Kart for the Super Nintendo and listening to Weird Al Yankovic. And specifically, (laughs) there were two albums that I was listening to at the time, and I'm pulling them up here. They were... Was it Bad Hair Day? I feel like that was later. Okay. So it was Off the Deep End, which came out April 14th, 1992. That's the one where he's mimicking the cover to Nevermind by Nirvana. And then I was also listening to, because I was playing Super Mario Kart for years, I was also listening to Alapalooza, which was released in October of 1993 and had the cover that was evoking Jurassic Park. Oh, I had these memories where I would turn the volume on the Super Mario Kart game down, which, you know, looking back a travesty because the soundtrack is amazing. (laughs) But at the time I was writing my own song parodies as a kid and I was obsessed with Weird Al. And so I just have memories of sitting on my bedroom floor, staring at my television screen, probably two feet away from it, just listening to Weird Al over and over and over again, and playing Super Mario Kart. And then when my dad would get home from work, or like on the weekend, I would beg him to come upstairs, yep. and we would play multiplayer. And that was another thing that I just loved about Super Mario Kart is you could play multiplayer. And we played battle mode until the cows came home. Uh-huh. That was such a fun game. I wasn't a huge Pilot Wings fan, so my big introduction to Mode Seven which is what allowed Mario Kart to have those kind of twisting and turning tracks, which were impossible to do on the Sega Genesis. It wasn't quite 3D. You know, the sprites were 2D, and all the sprites on the maps were 2D, and the levels were entirely flat, unlike Mario Kart 64, which had actual 3D multiple levels. But the Super Nintendo version of Super Mario Kart just felt new, unlike anything that could have been accomplished on the Nintendo. I didn't see anything like it on the Genesis. And the music was... Fantastic. Yep. It just had a huge impact on me. I want to play a couple of the songs from that soundtrack in a bit, but I would love to toss it to the two of you. I'll start with you, Pat. Did you play much Super Mario Kart as a kid? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so what was it like playing Super Mario Kart as a kid with your brother? I'm imagining the two of you played it a lot together. Uh uh-huh. And then what was it like returning to it as an adult?
2: So uh, playing it by myself now was easier because I didn't have that one asshole behind me with a red shell who was waiting to get close to me. (laughs) The battle modes, I'd say we probably did a a even amount of battle mode and then the actual just races. Considering that was my first foray into it as a kid, it's like, God, what is up with these controls? But you eventually get used to it, like the jump turn kind of thing to be able to take a tight turn as opposed to just trying to make it and bounce off the wall until you could finally turn to the way you're trying to go. (laughs) Or like you get turned back around and trying to figure out reverse or you just bounce into a wall to go.
0: There were a few things in, in the first Mario Kart game. There were a few things in that game that continued into the sequels. But like one of the things that they didn't have, and that was a bit of a shock to me going back to it, they didn't have some of the things that you come to expect from a Mario Kart game now that were instituted One generation later with Mario Kart 64, like drifting in order to boost and increase your speed, the drifting in Super Mario Kart handles entirely differently than any subsequent version of the game.
2: Yeah, you could still do the jump, but you weren't going to like slide. You could just try to slow down and like angle yourself a little bit better to try to make the turn on a 45 degree angle instead of just a hard 90. (laughs) If you're playing side by side, you could obviously see the screen. So it's like, you know, you're screwed if they're coming right <laughs> at you and you can't get away. Right. You don't have a shell. You don't have anything. Or if you have a green shell, you try like hell and you try to like deflect it, but it's not going to happen and you just bounce them. But with the graphics is like by the time it gets this close to you, that's when you can finally see it and you're done. Yeah. It's a little black speck, and then it starts getting two specks. Then it's a full shell and then you're hit.
0: Screen cheating was a big thing during that era, whether it was in the 16-bit era with Super Mario Kart or the 64-bit era with GoldenEye and everyone of decent moral value that I knew had a no-odd-job rule. Yep. That's how you knew who the real Gs were. Dan, what were your experiences like both playing Super Mario Kart as a kid, if you have any memories of that,
1: and then returning to it as an adult? I never owned this as a kid. I still don't actually have a copy of this. The only copy I have is on the SNES Mini that I have that I don't actually have because Pat's borrowing right now. So, but I did play it a lot with uh, friends and I do remember liking it a lot. After I played it, I would want to play it a lot. I'd even, I think I even had Dreams. Oh man, I can't wait to play that game again. But then I'd play it and then it would be like, I suck at this. I really suck at the original Super Mario Kart. I could never win races over the 50 (laughs) CC when I was a kid. Oh wow. I always... I could only do the 50. Maybe I could win one or two races at 100. I couldn't do 150. Now when I was a kid, definitely not. As an adult, I got a little bit better, but like only a little bit better. I'm sure we'll talk about Rainbow Road. But that was just impossible. Yeah. Impossible as a kid. I played Super Mario Kart, but I was more of the Mario Kart 64 kid. I own that game. I played that more with my friends. So like the fact that like that Rainbow Road had rails. that that you kind of fall off of. And then this Rainbow Row was just like, good luck, fucker. (laughs) Oh, man, okay. Yeah. Um, But like, you know, as an adult, I I know the nuances of the controls. It's still fun to play, but I prefer the the later versions of Mario Kart, I
2: guess I could say. Playing them now, especially going back to that one, I, in my mind going into it, I was going into Mario Kart 64. It's like, oh, that's a whole different, that's that one. And it just, Right, it was almost like a surprise. I'm like, ah, that's right. I forgot they made a whole different one of these.
1: Yeah. A oh, quick question. Quick question. Oh yeah. Who's everybody's go-to character in Super Mario Kart? Oh, this is easy. So for me, it was either Koopa Troopa or Toad. I was either Toad or Yoshi. No, uh, I was. I'm with Michael. So either either Koopa Troopa or Toad. Yeah.
0: They had tight handling, Mm -hmm. very fast acceleration. Mm -hmm. Their top speed wasn't as fast, but I was never able to really get a handle on those big boat type characters
1: like Bowser or Donkey Kong. I never played as Donkey Kong. I just hate. I was like, this is stupid. He's slow. I wouldn't even want to be this guy. Best thing you could do is bump people,
2: but still not even worth it. Right. I do have some memories of playing as Yoshi, but
0: I can't recall why I didn't play as Yoshi more. But I think I played Koopa up
2: 60-70% of the time, and the other percent was mostly Toad. Same. So, yeah. I think I picked Yoshi the first time because I was like, fuck it, I don't have to be Luigi for the first time as the younger brother to <laughs> be <me> anybody else. <laughs>
0: uh, and you had to go with someone green, so some old habits never die. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'll change, but not that much. One of the things that I loved about Mario Kart when I wasn't listening to Weird Al Yankovic was the soundtrack. I loved the percussion. I loved how lively it felt. I've got a couple of the songs queued up. Hopefully, you'll be able to hear them because our audience is about to hear the main theme to Super Mario Kart right now. What I love about that song specifically is it calls back, to use a phrase from you, Dan, it calls back to something you said earlier about how the Super Nintendo was able to more closely approximate actual instruments than, let's say, the Sega Genesis. You hear those horns come in right at the end of that little snippet. And when those horns come in, again, for the young people listening to this or those who weren't into games when they were kids in the 90s like the three of us were, you're coming from 8-bits where it's literally just MIDI. There's nothing that approximates any kind of anything resembling an actual instrument. And 16-bit isn't quite there yet, but it's so much closer that when you hear something like that for the first time, or I had a similar experience listening to Donkey Kong Country, I, I still listen to some of the songs off the Donkey Kong Country
2: soundtrack just on Spotify in the background when I'm doing work. I listen to video game music all the time. But going years back, I would just download like AOL, whatever you started downloading stuff. I would always look for MIDI files and it made your MySpace page cooler. First off. (laughs) Oh, my God. MySpace. Yeah. (laughs) But I would be remiss if
0: I didn't play at least one more snippet from Mario Kart. Ah, Hard to pick between the two. It's either Mario Circuit or Donut Planes. You know what? I'm going to go with Donut Planes because the percussion on Donut Planes is so good. Listen to this. (music) The soundtrack to Mario Kart reminds me almost of Hayao Miyazaki, Spirited Away or something like that. The soundtracks to those movies don't sound like that, but it evoked something like that in my mind when I listened to the soundtrack to that game. Just something friendly, lively, that told a story of a
2: world beyond the game itself that I loved. You could even hear the difference between different styles of drums. Like Some sound like bongos, some are like a bass drum, and then you have the Caribbean steel drum. Yes,
0: And as a musician, Dan, is there anything in particular that you, especially returning to the game as an adult, that you appreciated about the soundtrack?
1: Oh, wow. How do you put me on the spot like that? This is the episode of putting Dan on the spot, ladies and gentlemen. It's a soundtrack that I really like. I don't know if there's anything. We talked about this a little bit before. It is a shorter song length, but they're just ridiculously catchy in general, Koopa Beach is like one of my favorites. That's the one that always comes to mind for me too. Yeah, seriously. I love that. I used to, before I did Console Wars, I used to make drinking videos (laughs) about drinking tutorials for drinking games. And I used to use video game songs and uh, I used Koopa Beach for one of those videos. So I just always liked different tracks for uh, the Super Mario Kart game.
0: Yeah, Koopa Beach was one that I almost picked. It was a toss up between that and Donut Plains. Yeah, and that soundtrack is banger after banger. Okay, because I wanted to have this episode with the two of you, not only because I think you're two of the top experts in kind of the 16-bit era of video games, Console Wars again is coming up on its 12-year anniversary. You guys have been doing this for more than a decade now. Literally, if Console Wars was a human being, it's just about to enter puberty. (laughs) Next episode, whenever we can film, is our 100th. I was just about to ask, so did you just record your 99th? Yes. That's fantastic. So you're just about to record your 100th. Without obviously spoiling anything do you plan to do anything
2: special for the 100th episode of console wars we're discussing different ideas dan's got a pretty good outline of what he wants to do and how we can make it special, make it a little more than the other episodes. I want to have a lot of
1: stuff in it.
2: Exactly. That's all I can. Without
1: spoiling it, that's all I can say. Yeah, that's why I'm trying to like pick my words too. I'm just like a lot of things, a lot of things, a lot. Obviously, a lot of callbacks as well, mm-hmm. because you know we got to celebrate a hundred episodes. So I'll just say that. Yeah, I mean, that's a tall order, because if you think
0: about all the songs, all the song parodies, all of the characters, again, whether they're puppet characters, whether they're characters your wife has played, Dan, whether they're characters the two of you have played over the years, whether they're Mortal Kombat characters or clones of yourself, Dan, the depth of console wars, the lore around it, the amount of characters you've had. You have a TV Tropes page dedicated to console Wars, right? That in and of itself is a kind of achievement. And I think it speaks to the depth and breadth of console Wars as a channel and as an idea and like the impact it's had on people. Obviously, Dan, you've been here since the beginning. Pat, you've been part of console Wars, I think, for about four years now. So Um, yeah, almost four years, I think, over four years. Going 12 years back, Dan, was reaching 100 episodes even something that you were even picturing at the time? What does it feel like to come up on that milestone?
1: feel like I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, it's, it's crazy because like I remember too. It was like when I told Greg, I was like, all right, we'll just do like 10 episodes at least. And as long as we get to Batman and Robin, as long as we get to there, I'll be good. We could just, I would want to quit too after that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just do that many and quit. And it's like, all right, whatever. And then like, it just kept getting more fun for me. So I just kept doing it. Uh, and I'm keeping on doing it and I plan on keeping on doing it well after 100. It's a fantastic creative outlet for me as we discussed before you nailed it on the head last time like oh it's like it's a little more sketch heavy and I feel like you're liking that I'm like yeah I really do like that a lot it's just a fun creative space for me just to come up with craziest ideas or take something I've seen and be like let's implement that into like our stupid little silly web series here so I really have fun doing that. Pat and I have a lot of fun filming it. Pat, the bloopers are cracking me up for this last episode. We just have a few beers and crack up. I even said in some points, like, these are going to be some weird bloopers this one. Yeah, so as long as it's a fun, creative space for me and we have fun filming it, let's keep on doing it. Yeah, yeah, we have a great time every
2: time we we do one. I mean, there was a stretch. I think it was when it was when I was at the Spirit Halloween where I'm just like, let's just film this thing. I'm exhausted, yeah. but now I go into it as like a normal human being, and as it was before that, <laughs> and I'm just like, we just laugh, and we probably add an extra hour of film time onto it just because we're joking around, being idiots. But yeah, that's what keeps it going that idiocy.
1: Yeah, part of it is is let's just see what makes the other guy crack up. Mm -hmm. I'll just like break from the script and then sometimes those takes are the takes we use.
0: Yeah. In the way that I returned to the 90s to play some of these games that I hadn't thought of, I went back because as I'm prepping to play and make notes for the Adventures of Batman and Robin for the Genesis, I knew Console Wars reviewed that game. So I go back nine years in time and it's interesting in the same way that I went back probably about the same amount of time to look at the first Earthworm Jim review, right? I think Earthworm Jim 2, you were in that one, Pat. Yes. But Earthworm Jim 1, that was almost a decade ago. Jeez. And so to go back and see not just how the image quality has improved, I mean, I think you shot the first couple of years on, it looks like a potato. (laughs) But over over time, the image quality not only drastically improves, but the first couple of years, it's very bare bones, all things considered, right? Like you jump into the video game review pretty quickly, you get to the meat and potatoes of how these games are different. But then over time, what's really cool is that you've used the structure and the format of this comparing a game versus a game. But then within that structure, you found so much room to play by adding these additional characters, by
1: adding sketches. And what I think is really great. Do the two of you watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia at all? Of course. To and my wife. By the way, I'm Mac in my wife's phone to this day. She thought I looked like Mac. A lot of people have told me I look like Mac. And then I'm still Mac in her phone. I'm not Dan. I'm Mac. Will you eventually be Mac Daddy? (laughs) At the very least, you have to start
0: slicking your hair back and accumulating mass, Dan, if you're really going to live up to the... There you go.
1: It slicks back real nice. Now I'm doing Tim Robinson. Yeah.
0: (laughs) The reason I bring up It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is because I've been a fan of that show for well over a decade now. But I will say, as they've gotten more skilled as filmmakers and as the show has continued to progress... It has lost something that I liked about it when it was newer. I don't know if either of you watched the It's Always Sunny podcast, but there was this conversation that got rather heated, actually, between... Charlie and Mac? Yes. Charlie Day and Rob McElhenney. Yeah. And Charlie is talking about how he wishes that the show was still in 4 by 3 that he wishes it was still shot in standard definition, that while he appreciates that Rob is always trying to push the show to be something more and to push in interesting areas that sometimes he's worried that some of what originally made It's Always Sunny what it is, is kind of lost. And I'm grateful for Rob. I'm grateful that he pushes them to do really strange things because I think some of the best episodes are their strangest. But when I watch a modern episode of It's Always Sunny, with its hyper-professionally lit sets, all the actors are wearing like way better makeup, and it just feels like a different show. It's still funny, but it feels different. And this is all to say what I appreciate about Console Wars is that going back in time 10 years and watching the older episodes and then comparing them to the ones today, it is clear that you have more technical prowess. You've gotten better as actors. Like Everything about the show has improved, and yet what happened to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia hasn't happened with Console Wars. It doesn't feel like, oh, okay, with all of their additional know-how, they've transformed into something different. What I love is that kind of be kind, rewind aesthetic, that feeling of this was made by two guys who love doing what they do, but it still feels homemade, but just top tier homemade. I just want to say that I not only admire, but appreciate as a fan that you have continued to, despite the fact that you've become much better filmmakers over time, that feeling of two dudes shooting the shit in their home on a couch, that feeling remains.
1: I imagine that's an intentional creative choice, and I appreciate it. That's really, that's awesome. Seriously though, Michael, I really appreciate what you said. That's like high praise, like dude, like comparing us to like, it's always sunny, but like kind of maintain that early kind of like grittiness, which like, I, I really just, thank you. Thank you so much. I didn't know that. Like, honestly, like for me, I feel like it has lost just a little bit because like in the early days, I tried to keep the ideas super original for all the concepts and everything. But as of lately, I've tried to make it more centered around the video games, like every sketch and everything. So it's not just like a random dude who's just ran into a random guy. And then all of a sudden we're just talking about this video game. Like it's more, it's more related to it. I feel like it's just lost that a little bit, like for me as the writer, but I put in like the same amount of effort and everything and absolutely try to keep it as fresh. Like I never try to repeat stuff I've used before like I always just try to come with a fresh approach for like each episode what can I bring to this that I haven't brought before and I'm happy as an observer that you've been like I feel like they've kept up the integrity from the beginning so thank you in my mind I think the only thing
2: that's like if we would advanced anywhere like as you said film not a potato versus what it looks like now yeah it looks better but we've come up with I don't know I guess more intricate or involved ways to do some things just to make them look a little bit more accurate or funnier or better like bomberman perfect example i mean it took uh, we just filming the above shots we were trying to figure out how to get us that little sprite look dan's got a mirror sitting in the basement so i put it up to the rafters and i'm moving it at different angles and the camera up filming backwards at it it's like trying to just like really disney imagineer the shit out of this thing and we did a few takes played it through did a different take at a different angle played that and it, it worked I want to say that's probably the most involved thing we've ever done
1: filming wise, like an actual film gag. Just to get an actual angle, because my basement's obviously not big enough to get like that eagle eye view well, yeah. of us. Right. So Pat was like, what if we just shot the mirror and then have the mirror shoot you? And I was just like, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> and it obviously worked. So I, I'm an idiot in that instance.
2: I'm a real outside the box thinker. I'm good to have around here. One of the reasons why this podcast
0: is titled what it is, you know, where we go next is because for me, I could never do what you do. And I don't mean that in, in any kind of faux modesty sort of thing. There are podcasts out there where they're like, and every week they do that NPR voice. This week, we are going to be exploring the murder of so-and-so. And And like every episode is about the same topic. It's just something different within the same genre. Like it's my murder podcast or it's my podcast about duck hunting or whatever it is. And they do that for years and years and years. I mean, there are movie review podcasts that I've been listening to for a decade. And I'm so glad that they just keep doing exactly what they're doing. I could never do that. If I'm going to have to return to the exact same thing over and over and over again, I'm going to get bored and then I know I'm going to start phoning it in and then I'll hate myself for phoning it in. And so for me, the way that I keep myself engaged with this project is, all right, I'll interview the CEO of this and then I'll interview these dudes from YouTube. It's so that every episode I have to dive into an entirely new thing that I have no idea about any of it and I have to research frantically and stress myself out and then hopefully be prepared enough that I don't embarrass myself and then record the episode and then start the process anew. And again, I don't want to drown you with praise, guys. No, you can do that. That's cool. (laughs) When I see dudes like you, you know, in any field, but specifically speaking about console wars, who are doing the exact same format a hundred times and finding continuous ways to stay creative within that format without betraying what got fans interested in the first place is really difficult. I couldn't do it. So the fact that you're able to... Keep renewing the well, so to speak. I mean, to turn the praise into a question, have there ever been times in which either of you have struggled with, okay, uh, yeah, okay, let's just, what are some 16 bit games we can review? And how do we get ourselves excited about this again? And we have a deadline coming up and every 30 days we have to do a new one. Like, how do you keep yourself from getting burnt out?
1: That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess I'll take because I'm I'm the one that writes the scripts. I'm 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 the one that kind of like decides the games. You're the Trey Parker. I'm fine with that. It's a creative outlet for me. I come at it at that aspect. And if I'm able to like I always try to like come up with something that I would like, you know, with the scripts. What would I find entertaining? What would I think is funny or cool? Or how can I just take from something I like and like give it my own twist? So I'm always like challenging myself creatively and I like that I like always challenging myself creatively because at the end of the day I'm a selfish person like what can I do (laughs) to make it interesting for me and I do stress sometimes and like sometimes I can't think of anything for this sometimes I'll just go to my wife and like "I I got nothing for this but like ultimately I always figure something out and I'll pull through and be like, wow, that's actually a pretty good idea. I think I should just do that. I don't know where it comes from. I'll
2: even say that's rare. In four years, I could say there's probably maybe four times we've sat down in a room to just try to like spitball ideas for something if he couldn't come up with something or had the beginning of a premise but didn't know where to go with it. But normally, I'd say 97% of the time, it's pretty much all that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll say it again. Creative problem solving is one of my favorite favorite things to do like ever give me like a scenario and like ask me to make it funny or like relatable to something and like i love doing that i don't know this is just how my mind works and i'll just have a, like a random conversation with my wife and i'll just come up with a stupid sketch about it and she's just like there you go again just constantly creating she's on the couch nodding her head right now she's like yeah that's you that's absolutely you i'll come up with a stupid song for my dog just to go to bed. There's a song <laughs> you sing called Bedtime Puppy constantly creating. And the fact that people love to watch it and like are willing to watch it like all the time is so humbling for me. Oh my god, like this silly idea that I came up with in the shower. Now people are gonna watch now. I can't believe that that's my life. Like people like enjoy this stuff. So I'm really humbled by it and It's my fuel. It's my fuel for the show. It's why I do what I do. And like when people go, I like the show, but I hate the sketches. It's the sketches are what drives me to do the show. So if you don't like it, I'm sorry. It's my favorite thing.
2: Yeah, we get a few comments on that every now and then. 95% of the people enjoy the sketches, are indifferent to the sketches. And then there's five people who are like, here, it starts. The comparison starts at 327.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm always like, no, no, the video starts at zero, zero, zero. (laughs) This commenter is wrong. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Yeah, your sketches are dumb. He's like, all right. They're like, could you just not do the sketches? It's okay. I'll just change the thing I've been doing for over a decade. And that thing that thousands of people enjoy just because there's one random person. Yeah, I'll I'll just do that for you, buddy. No problem. I don't say that, but I think it and it makes me feel good. (laughs)
0: to do a michael translation to take two of the points you just made i think very eloquently dan by the way the two points that you made that are tied together thematically is from a creator standpoint you said probably half jokingly that you made these for selfish reasons the only way an audience gets good content whatever that content is whether it's a movie television show youtube channel song whatever is that the creator has to make something that they selfishly would enjoy Everything that's ever been created on planet Earth, unless it's been commissioned, I've done creative stuff for pay, that's a different beast. When you do something for yourself, when you make something from scratch by yourself, you're making the thing that you would have wished had existed and it didn't, so you did it. Exactly. You started Console Wars, Dan, because originally you were going to do an angry video game nerd style rant by yourself, but then you're like, well, it would actually be funnier if there was two people comparing these things and you realized that there wasn't anyone doing that, so you did it. And if you don't start from a selfish standpoint of, I want to make a video, I want to make a channel, I want to make a song that I'm going to love, I'm making it for me. If you don't start from that standpoint, what you make will suck. And ironically, when the audience says, hey, can you just make this the way that I wanted you to make it or the way that it used to be? I think what they can't understand is if you gave them what they wanted, not only would you not like doing it, but it wouldn't be good you'll always be chasing an invisible dragon because you can never know what the audience wants because you don't know them. And two, your heart won't be in it and the product won't be as good. Anyway, that's just my small defense of all the sketches. Because if that's the thing that keeps you interested in making console wars, then You can make it 90% sketches. If that's the thing that keeps the channel going, I'm all for it.
2: Yeah, so suck on that, you three
0: people. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny.
1: (laughs) Suck on that, three dudes in the comment section. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is pretty rare these days that we could run into those comments. But obviously, time and time again, it's those comments that are the loudest for some stupid reason, right? And it's really hard to just completely ignore them. Early on, my favorite comments were the ones who were like, who's this guy? I want to punch him in the face. And it was like,
2: there'd be be a handful of them every episode. And I would just crack up. I would scroll through specifically looking for those.
0: Although I will say in defense of the vast majority of the console wars audience, like one thing that I really love is that it is one of the rare YouTube comment sections that is just overwhelmingly positive, just filled with positivity and support. And I think it's specifically because it's tapping into an audience that is often underserved. And it's tapping into it in a way that isn't being tapped into in other ways. YouTube is bereft with video essays about the 16-bit era of video gaming, right? You can throw a, a stone and hit a thousand video essays comparing this game to that game. I think the YouTube comments for Console Wars are as positive as they are, is because it's not just some disembodied voice over a replay of Donkey Kong Country set to some cool music while I learned the history of Rare. It's... Two dudes who are clearly in a, I live in an average house. You guys live in average houses. It's not like some mansion with this celebrity commenting on video game consoles. How dare you? I'm leaving. (laughs) It's again, it's the relatability and something that you've preserved over 12 years of the show. It's the relatability of two dudes who clearly love what they do, who could be dudes who you would see at a brewery and not just the one that you work at, Pat who just seem like dudes you could shoot the shit with in the way that we've done during this episode, who just are trying to make each other laugh. With that, before I wrap out, are there any topics on these games or anything in general about the 16-bit era of video gaming that the two of you wanted to briefly discuss before I let you go? I feel like I've been holding you hostage
2: for two and a half hours. Uh, there was, I mean, one thing you actually mentioned earlier that I don't know if we ever like super delved into, but the fact that it does still get repurposed today they are still making new games with the side-scrolling platformer or almost like the top-down kind of view, not like an overhead, but like that 45-degree angle looking down. What was the one, the cup game? I can't remember the name of it right now. Cuphead? The Cuphead, yeah, okay, so that was it. So that looks exactly like that style, but with a much cleaner, almost like yeah, modern-day cartoon look to it. Same kind of effect, but it even goes back to the Mickey Mouse style, like the 1930s-looking cartoons, but done as that side-scrolling kind of thing. 16-bit
0: era more so than the early polygon era of, you know, Nintendo 64 and the PlayStation. I think holds up not just because that visual style aged better, but because it really is whether it's like Earthworm Jim, which is more of a classic platformer or like The Adventures of Batman and Robin, which is a contra-style shoot 'em up, the fundamentals never changed. A good platformer whether it was made in 1993 or 2023, if the fundamentals of a good platformer are still there, It's satisfying. And to my money, that's why that era of video games continues on. Yeah, excellent point. Dan, Pat, I've really enjoyed speaking with the two of you tonight. I'm really glad we got to do this bonus episode, which is far afield from a traditional where we go next episode. But I think we've gone to some interesting places. We've done a lot of inside baseball and not the digitized 16-bit kind. Or Dan's shitty playing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not good at baseball. We get it. (laughs) You may not have been good at baseball as a kid, Dan, but you've certainly gone to bat for your favorite 16-bit video games, and I appreciate that. And again, it's a privilege to talk with the two of you dudes, because not only are you just cool guys who I enjoy chatting with, but you make a lot of great content, and I know that I speak for, I bet, a lot of the fans of your channel. So I appreciate what you guys do, and thanks for your time. Thank you for having
1: us, Michael. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Michael.
0: Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts.